another SPAC Insider podcast. I'm Nick Clayton, and this week's SPAC Insider's founder, Christy Marvin, and I will be speaking with Chris Ermeson, co-founder and CEO of Aurora. Aurora entered into a $10.5 billion combination agreement with reInvent Technology Partners, Y, in July. It is developing driverless car technology for use in both the freight trucking and taxi markets. We talk about the winding path that autonomous vehicle technology has taken and what steps are still necessary for Aurora to debut its first driverless trucks in 2023. Will people even drive cars in the future? And in a deal like this, how do you ensure that all parties are aligned financially over the medium term when a technology still has some developing to do? Take a listen. So thanks for joining us today. We're excited to hear more about Aurora. Um, but, you know, when preparing for this podcast, I read that you participated in the DARPA Grand Challenges in uh, 2004 and 2005, uh, both of which were driverless car competitions, um, which obviously naturally set you on this path. But I'd love to hear more about your background and how that eventually did lead to Aurora. Sure. Well, well first, thanks for having me. Really appreciate the chance to chat with you and, and speak to the audience today. Um, yeah, I, I guess I've been working this space for a while. I got to compete in in the 2004, 2005, and actually the 2007 Urban Challenge as well, which were all these, what we call back then, robot races. You know, now we talk about self-driving cars. Um, for me, I had been a graduate student at Carnegie Mellon University. I was working on my PhD, uh, and I'd spent time uh, working on NASA projects. And we had this robot in the desert that was super cool, Hyperion it drove it about 30 centimeters per second. And when the DARPA challenge got announced, it was, we're gonna have a robot drive from Los Angeles to Las Vegas, and it's gonna have to drive 50 miles an hour. And, and frankly, that just sounded cool, right? And so the chance to go and, and go out and play in the desert with robots and, and make it work, that was uh, energizing and exciting. And then as we got into that understanding that it was you know, the, the challenges the military was facing at the time with supply chains and and how there had been more deaths to in, in the supply chain, there had been actual combat deaths in, in Iraq was, was meaningful and that we could do something about that. And then over the years, you know, getting the chance to work on really just super interesting, exciting technology that has this breadth, you know, it's everything from mechanical and optical engineering through software engineering and government relations and public policy and all of that good stuff. And working on a problem that people kind of understand and then it has profound impact that, you know, as we talk now more about where we're going with Aurora, thinking about the, the benefits to safety on the roads, the benefits to uh, improving accessibility, uh, making transportation more equitable, lower cost, reinforcing our supply chains, making, you know, uh, making that more, more, more work more robustly and the whole time doing this with great people. It's just been incredibly fortunate. Yeah, it's funny. Um, you mentioned the robot race through the desert and it just immediately called to mind like some sort of weird cannonball run oh. <laughs> with the robots <laughs> and, and and you're you're not wrong right like yeah. uh, it, it was actually really fun to watch the over the three years so the first year um, no one really knew what to expect and so we were out there with a humvee and you know big electronics enclosure on it and robots called sandstorm but you know there was another robot there that was uh, inspired by a mollusk, I think they said, right? And so it was completely different. They had a Jeep. They, you know, there was all kinds of crazy things there. It was kind of fun. And then, you know, as the years went on, they became kind of more similar, right? Uh, to where the Urban Challenge, it was a bunch of SUVs with lasers and cameras and radars on them. And they all, you know, were in the same kind of solution space. But it really was 
just mind blowing back then. You know, we we had this robot, and you know, we were out in the uh, when we were developing Sandstorm, we we're up where the old Pony Express Trail was, mm -hmm. and so we were in a chase vehicle driving it. You know, it driving itself, us following it on these desert paths, and. You know, there were times that it was just unbelievably beautiful. The desert is beautiful by itself. And then you get the right sun angle and the, the sun is blinking or, or flashing off of the, the metal. It was, it, was, it was a really cool time. Yeah, definitely sounds very cool. Um, but I do want to uh, ask about Reed Hoffman, right, uh, who is on your board as well. But for anyone who doesn't know, Reed Hoffman is the founder of LinkedIn and one of Aurora's board members. Um, but he has previously called you the Henry Ford of self-driving vehicles. Um, and, and Henry yes. Ford, he, he had his aha moment when he, when he got a look at the Chicago Meat Packers assembly line. Um, but what was your aha moment for autonomous vehicles? Um, and how did you earn that nickname? <laughs> I think Reed made it up because he thought it would, uh, he thought I'd be embarrassed by it. Um, <laughs> I think it's where that came from. Uh, but there's been a few aha moments over the years. I think uh, the first was first DARPA or the second DARPA Grand Challenge, where we had these vehicles drive 150 miles across the desert, and there was just nobody on board, right? There was no no remote control, nobody kind of hiding under aluminum foil and steering it, you know, sneakily. Uh, that was kind of amazing. And then the Urban Challenge, which was a couple of years later, where now instead of just driving down a road, we had to drive on our side of the road and interact with traffic, at least, you know, kind of the 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 mock traffic that was there and again that was pretty incredible to drive 60 miles and then when um when i was at google uh helping found and, and lead that program uh we had the what we call the larry 1000 which was a thousand miles of interesting roads in california and uh just the the time where you know i remember we took a route where we drove across all the bay bridges uh in san francisco in the san francisco area here and you know merging onto the freeway and dealing with some narrow roads and it just it just kind of started to work and i think that was exciting and then the the impact that this could have i really felt when um we worked with uh, some members of the blind community um uh the gentleman steve mann in particular and just we we were clear with him this was a demonstration and that it was early on and that there was you know there's a gap between you know him trying this out and when we'd actually be able to have a product that he could use but seeing for him and other members of that community what this would mean to their lives yeah. um, and how it would impact them was a, another big moment for me and and just how transformational this can be and how fundamental it is to to all of our lives um and kind of the the importance and the responsibility of us you know tackling that problem uh you know became clear so i'm going to switch gears a little bit and ask more of the nuts and bolts of aurora but you know so rather than rely solely on conventional lidar for your vehicles aurora is using a variety of tech including radar cameras but also two types of LIDAR systems, conventional LIDAR for near objects and your proprietary first light LIDAR, um, which I read can see twice the distance of conventional LIDAR systems. Um, maybe you can explain why that is important. Yeah, so, so our approach at Aurora is one where we want to build a safe, reliable system. And our product's the Aurora driver, and it consists of software, hardware, and all the data service, things like maps and tele-assistance that enable a vehicle to drive safely uh, through the world. 
to see the world reliably, we don't want to just rely on one mode. So, you know, you kind of say, oh, well, people have two eyes. So that's kind of like cameras. So we'll just use cameras. Well, we think that's probably not good enough. Like we have better technology. We have radar, we have LIDAR. We can combine that with cameras uh, and we'll get an even better result, right? I, you know, I kind of liken it to, um, you know, it turns out horses have four legs and they run pretty well but we don't put legs on cars because it turns out that the wheel is actually a better answer, right? And so in this space, we think combining laser radar and camera, you know, really gets us there. First light LIDAR is our proprietary um, kind of LIDAR. And what's really neat about it is because of the way it uh, measures lights, the way it measures the, the, the time of flight of the light, um, it has, um, basically 10 to 20 fold amplification over a conventional LIDAR. So that means for the same amount of light, you can see further or you can see more robustly. Uh, it also, because we do this, this technique called frequency modulated continuous wave, uh, uh, we're much more immune to bright things in the world. So the way a normal LIDAR works is you send out a super bright pulse of, of laser light and it's a really short pulse goes out, bounces off the world, comes back, and then you're looking for a spike that comes back that's bright enough that it's above a threshold. And so it turns out if you look at the sun, sun's pretty bright, so it's above the threshold. So you can't see your pulse because you've already seen something or maybe a halogen headlight that, that you see out there, again, really bright and can kind of trip up these sensors or another LIDAR. Well, with our first light LIDAR, we're looking for exactly the waveform that we sent out. So that means we're immune to things like the sun, which isn't sending out a wave that looks like that. So mm -hmm. we can see through, uh, we're much more immune to, to that kind of noise. The other magical thing uh, that, that comes along with this is we can measure the Doppler shift. And so what, what that is, if, if you've listened to an ambulance go by, you know how the pitch shifts on the siren. So you can tell when it's coming towards you and away from you. Well, it turns out you can do the same thing with light because it's a wave like the wave of sound that, that's coming off of the, the, the ambulance. And so we can see that shift. And that means we can tell for each point that we measure with the LIDAR, we can tell whether it's moving towards us or away from us and how fast it's doing that. And so this is really powerful because it means that um, we can instantly know whether the thing we're measuring is moving in the world or is stationary. And you can imagine as you're driving down the freeway, driving a big truck, you get you want to see as far down the road as you can. And so that's that benefit of the self-heterodyne measurement technique that's part of FMCW, that 10 to 20-fold amplification. We want to be able to see in conditions where there's bright sunlight or there's headlights. And so that noise immunity is a benefit. And then we want to know instantly that thing on the horizon, is it something stopped in the road or is it something moving with us or, or heaven forbid it's something driving at us? Uh, and so we can know that instantly rather than having to wait, you know, a significant fraction of a second to be able to track it. And so all of those things increase the safety and performance of the Aurora driver. And again, when you're driving a big truck, a 70,000 pound truck, you want all of those margins to your advantage. Yeah, it definitely. <laughs> uh, one of one of Aurora's competitive advantages in the uh, self-driving vehicle industry comes definitely from your partnerships with Volvo and Uber in particular. Um, but can you maybe share a little bit about those and, and why they're important? Yeah, so we, we have thought hard about our approach to building a business, and it's one where we want to focus on what are we best in world at. And we think we can be best in world at building the, the Aurora driver, that ability for a vehicle to drive safely from one place to another. And we want to work with other amazing companies because we think together 
we will move more quickly uh, and we can help grow their businesses and that will help us grow our business as transportation is transformed by, by automation. And so we're partnered with um, PACAR uh, and Volvo Trucks. These are two of the largest, so two of the three top manufacturers in the United States. And between them, they make about 48% of the trucks in the US. So those are incredible partnerships for us, right? These are great storied companies that know how to build quality products who have tremendous customer relationships. So they're, they're a fantastic set of partners for us. We're also partnered with Toyota, the world's number one car manufacturer. Uh, and again, for that, they're, they're, we're, with them, we're working on light vehicles. We're working on a Toyota Sienna platform that's being designed to be automated and for the Aurora driver. Uh, we work with Uber, uh, the world's number one ride hailing platform. So again, that's a business that's very complicated, difficult business to operate. I don't wanna have to replicate that. Why don't we work with Dara and his team uh, to bring the Toyota Sienna to market with them and, and serve their customers and, and provide an incredible experience there. And then finally, uh, we work with uh, FedEx as well. So this is the largest uh, carrier, free carrier in the US by number of tractors and number of trailers. And so as I think about positioning Aurora to bring this technology to market, bring this product to market, being partnered with two of the three tr top truck manufacturers in the US, the number one car manufacturer in the world, the number one ride hailing platform in the world, and the number one carrier freight in the US, uh, right? The, the largest carrier freight in the US. Like, it feels like we're in a pretty darn great position to go and, and, and have a huge impact and create a bunch of value for our shareholders. Yeah, totally. And, and it seems like uh, some of the first commercial applications that we're going to see of Aurora are in that trucking space. And you mentioned some of your partners there. Can you talk about why there's, there's such demand in trucking? Um, and what are some of the conversations you're having with businesses as you're working on, on getting your solutions out there in the trucking industry? For sure. As, as we've spent more time talking with the trucking industry, um, it's really apparent the need is, is just real, right? I don't think you read a, you, I don't think we go a headline or a day without there being a headline about the supply chain challenges. I think somebody called it a supply chain catastrophe uh, that we're facing. And a big chunk of that challenge is just moving stuff through the world. Uh, and a big part of that challenge is just the lack of people willing to drive trucks. So in the US, uh, it's estimated that we're short 60,000 truck drivers today. And by the end of the decade, we expect to be short 160,000. The UK and Japan are facing similar kinds of challenges and I'm sure other places are as well. I'm just not as, as well versed in the statistics. And so as we talk to, to carriers and private fleets, for them, it's very much not about replacing the drivers they have, right? They love their employees, they, they value them deeply. It's just that they can't get enough of them. Uh, and so the Aurora driver can come in and support their business, work adjacent to their, their human drivers, um, enable the, the people that drive their vehicles to be home at night. So the Aurora driver can take the long distance chunks of the trip to begin with. And those, those people can operate the local trip so they get to home and see their family each night. And as Aurora, we get to do something useful in the world. We get to improve safety on the roads. Uh, and we get to go after this you know, gigantic industry, which is freight, which in the US alone is about $700 billion. Uh, and a big chunk of that is in trucking. So we're, we're incredibly excited about that opportunity. By the way, before we got on to record this, I was reading an article in Bloomberg about how uh, to date, there have been 3000 mentions on earnings calls about supply chains. And one of the reasons cited was lack of truck drivers. So yeah. imagine your phone is ringing off the hook. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we're having some very good conversation with folks. And again, I think it's really important that one of the most uh, 
exciting parts of this is it's not about replacing the drivers that are there. It's about providing more drivers that they can get. And, and the, the carriers and, and private fleets, they have this challenge where um, uh, they have a shortage, they have massive turnover, and the cost of labor is only going to go up over time. Uh, and so for them, having a reliable supply of safe drivers that they can have, again, operate uh, next to the, the, the people they have driving their vehicles, I think is going to be transformational for their business. And, and then you think about longer term, the opportunities here. So today, a truck is limited by the distance a person can drive in 10 hours, because that's kind of the hour of service limitation they have. Whereas the Aurora driver is going to be able to drive basically 24-7. It's going to have to stop for fuel and maintenance. Uh, but this means that it transforms the logistics network in the U.S. And it goes from tens of warehouses needed to put the, U you know, the, the population of the U.S. within um, you know, a, a two-day trip to three to four warehouses. And so this really allows... The, these companies to think in the long term about what does their footprint look like? What does their network look like? How do we complement that with automated vehicles? And how do we ultimately serve their customers better and grow their businesses? That's really exciting. And so what is your plan for commercializing this technology? Do you have a business model that can help recoup the high R&D costs of, of developing all this self-driving technology? Yeah. So, so again, our model is let's focus on the thing we do best, which is the driver, and then let's work with others to deploy it. And aligned with that, the way the Aurora driver is going to come to market is through a driver as a service model. Uh, so you think of it as if you're a carrier, um, say FedEx, one of our announced partners, you might you go to Peterbilt and you say, I'd like the 579 uh, tractor. I'd, I'd like it with the Aurora driver installed on it. And so you'll buy that from, from, uh, from Peterbilt. Uh, and then you'll pay Aurora an ongoing usage fee for using the Aurora driver. Uh, and so this will kind of, um, you know, you can think of it like a software as a service type model. And so for that, we'll provide, you know, the, the maintenance, the hardware, uh, we'll provide ongoing software updates and, and you know, the, the, the remote teleoperation and services that come along with that. Uh, and so this model ends up creating a very asset-like business for us for the long-term, creates really interesting, again, software as a service type margins for us. And, and it allows our partners to leverage their networks as well effectively. So we're, we think it's a, a really exciting model. One of the things that mattered to us is let's not be in a place where we're competing with our customers, right? So, so let's be the, the, the supplier of the driver to their businesses and let's have them run their business and, and make it very clear that that's, that's not what we do and, and, and help them again, grow and, and execute. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And, you know, a lot of other companies that are trying to solve some of these same problems and working in this space are focused, very, uh, very focused on either the self-driving heavy trucks or driverless taxis, but you're pursuing both at the same time. And why did you decide to, to go that path? Yeah, fundamentally, our experience tells us it's the same problem. If you think about it, every truck driver who has a commercial driver's license started with a light vehicle license. You don't kind of skip the two, right? And it's because the skills, the fundamental skills are basically the same. You are looking out at the world around the vehicle, trying to figure out what's going to happen over the next few seconds, how your behavior is going to influence that, and then picking the right driving actions to move the vehicle safely and efficiently down the road. And so as we think about this problem, um, we think it is 
it, it's, it's just dramatically overlapped. Now, you have to have that understanding at the beginning because you can make architectural decisions that make it very difficult for there to be overlap. Uh, you know, if you don't have a robust enough representation of the world, say you build a model that really just works on freeways, then you won't be able to handle dense urban driving, uh, right? You just, it just won't translate. If you can't see far enough and you haven't engineered in the abilities to do safe stopping where you pull the side of the road, then you're not gonna be able to get from low speed driving to high speed driving. And so this is where as Aurora, we thought early on, let's make sure the Aurora driver is engineered uh, and designed as an integrated system that works across platforms. Uh, and so, yeah, we're, we're excited about that. As a business, uh, we see a lot of synergies between the two. Um, hurts me every time I say that word, but uh, we still see them there, that uh, we see the truck product being our first coming to market. Uh, we expect to be building that and operationalizing that business starting in uh, late 23. Uh, and then the ride hailing application will come to market uh, a little later. And it'll basically look a lot like the truck product in that it'll start off the freeway, drive a short distance onto the freeway, drive down the freeway, come off the freeway and drop people off where they're going. And you think of that as like a, a typical airport to hotel or airport to business district type trip. And this is quite different than where most of the other players in, in the, the robo taxi space are working, right? They're all working in kind of low speed urban driving. And we think this is interesting because one, it's, if you look at the, uh, a swath of uh, Uber's cities, right? It turns out that the significant fraction of the trips are this kind of thing that requires you to drive at high speed. And that's unique to what Aurora's building. And then because of our special relationship with Uber, we're gonna feather those vehicles into the Uber network in a way where we're not serving every trip, we're just serving those trips we can. And that'll be a small fraction of Uber trips to begin with. But over time, we'll be able to look at the data we have from Uber that says, that allows us to figure out which feature do we add next to the Aurora driver and how does that unlock, what, what return on investment does that unlock for us? So maybe it's making, um, uh, maybe it's crossing railway tracks, or maybe it's making left turns at busy pedestrian intersections. I don't know what it is in this moment from that base feature, but you know we'll we'll be able to figure out which of those allows us to have the biggest beneficial impact on Uber's business. Grow those as we grow that capability on the passenger side, because it's the same software and the same hardware on both the trucks and the cars. We'll be able to take that more complicated driving behavior, transition it back to the truck. And now instead of the truck going from a terminal to a terminal, it can go from a warehouse to a terminal, or ultimately it'll go from a warehouse to a distribution center to a store uh, and full, fulfill the whole driving task. And again, that can't happen if you don't architect the system up front to do that. But we end up getting this nice benefit, bilateral benefit, where we get basically the ride hailing product. A lot of that comes along almost for free from the trucking product. And then as we scale out technologically, the ride hailing product, the truck product benefits from that and grows as well. Great. And on the you know the subject of kind of that testing and, and, and working through that, because this technology is being proven, it faces a lot of restrictions in terms of how it can be tested on public roads. Could you just walk us through a little bit in terms of like what is possible to test right now and how you're making progress through that? Yeah. So so it turns out that in the US, it's actually a really uh, a permissive regulatory environment. And the way regulations work in the US is that the federal government regulates the safety of the vehicle, state governments regulate the, the safe operation of the vehicle, and local governments regulate access to the roadways. And in the vast majority of the US today, 
um, both the, the federal government and the states are enthusiastic supporters of the technology. They see the safety benefit. They see the economic benefit. You know, they, they, they see they're, they're quite engaged and proactive. I think in 45 of the 50 U.S. states, if we had a truck we were confident of the safety of, we could operate it without, an, without a human driver on board on, on the road today. So that allows us a lot of um, uh, flexibility that we, you know, to, to be out in the world and developing the system. As Aurora, one of the insights we had in founding the company was that's not going to that's not going to actually get you there. Then you can drive a bunch of time on the road, but you know, if you think about a, a human fatality, a, a, a person driving a car has a fatal accident about once every hundred, well, one point one five times per hundred million miles. So that's a lot of miles. Uh, and so if you think about, uh, you know, say it's one per 80 million miles-ish roughly, that's a lot of miles to drive if you want to get to a statistically interesting measure of that. And so we realized that's not going to happen. Uh, so we've invested heavily in, um, in simulation tools, proprietary uh, virtual development and test tools that allow us to more rapidly test and more efficiently test and be able to take the experiences we get on the real world take them into the simulation, uh, into the simulation system, and then expound upon them, right? Create variations of them uh, procedurally that allow us to have more confidence in the capability. And the inspiration comes for this comes from the way other engineering applications have evolved. So if you think back to kind of the old days of mechanical engineering, you know, you'd have an engineer who'd kind of sketch something out, they'd go to the shop, they would machine it for them, they'd go you know, bend it and shake it and heat it and find out what breaks. And then they go design another thing on paper. They make it and they iterate the cycle. The way mechanical engineering happens today is they sit down at a CAD station, they design it, they test it in simulation, right? They can put thermal tests through it, electrical tests, whatever, uh, mechanical shock and vibe through it. They study that, they refine the part all inside the computer. Then they go out in the real world and check it. And then they can make another pass if they need to. But this means they can iterate dramatically more quickly. And this insight was what we kind of came to with Aurora. It was like, that's the right way we should be developing self-driving vehicles and why we've invested so heavily uh, in those tools. Totally. And we mentioned Mr. Hoffman before, but you have a lot of expertise on your on your board and in your conversations with investors now that this process has started, how does that, how does your, your own governance, um, you know, how is that reflected? And I guess the questions you're getting from investors and, and how do you feel like that's had an effect on, on the confidence levels there? Yeah, I think, I think if you look at our board, it's, it's phenomenal. We've been fortunate to attract a great investor base and, and a great board. Um, you know, our, our board today is really all people who have, you know, are operators. Uh, so we have uh, Reed, as you mentioned, you know, part of the PayPal team, uh, founded LinkedIn on the board of Microsoft. We've got Carl Eschenbach, who is the chief operating officer of VMware, you know, great human being, understands uh, operating businesses. We've got Mike Volpe. Uh, who was chief strategy officer at Cisco. When Cisco was in their particularly acquisitive phase, that was Mike. Uh, you know, he ran their um, IP routing business. So really understands mixed software, hardware businesses, understands, you know, how to lead at scale. So credible resource for me. Uh, Brittany Bagley joined us. She's the CFO of Sonos, previously at KKR. So again, um, uh, just really thoughtful person uh, in the space. Uh, and then the three of us who founded the company, um, you know, my experience uh, building the what's now Waymo and, and leading that till 
a few years ago. Uh, Sterling was at, um, uh, at Tesla. He led the launch of Model X and Autopilot, the first version of that. Drew is one of the world's leading experts in machine learning and robotics, you know, top handful of people on the planet. And so what we find is when we talk to uh, investors, they're, they're initially they're impressed with that cast of characters. Uh, and then we get a chance to introduce them to, you know, my executive team, our executive team, and, uh, you know, to part of our engineering staff. And, you know, I don't think I've left a meeting where people didn't come away impressed by the depth of experience. You know, Jan Bing, who leads our software team, was an SVP at VMware, a VP of cloud at, at Google, right? Amazing leader. Uh, Shandor, CTO of GoPro, um, before joining that, before that at Aptina, so understands, you know, optics, uh, op optical sensors and, and manufacturing those at scale. You know, we have Kobe and Colette who led uh, communications and marketing uh, for Tesla when it was kind of growing through the phase we are. So understand how to build a brand. Um, our CISO, Gerhard, was CISO for Google before joining us. Uh, and so those are, you know, that's just incredible cast characters. You go a level deeper, it continues, right? And so um, a few weeks ago, we hosted Aurora Illuminated where we had uh, investors and analysts come down and get a chance to meet, you know, some of the, the next layer of our team. And again, it, it's, it's one of those moments where you feel like kind of a proud papa, right? Where, where your people are out there talking and you just can't be more than, you know, more impressed with, with how they handle themselves and the work they're doing. Yeah, amazing, amazing team. Um, I'm going to switch gears again a little bit and just talk uh, about the spec. So the question I usually like to ask teams is, you know, what was your decision-making process like when considering whether to go public via a spec? You know, had you considered a traditional IPO and, and why now versus maybe just raising another round privately? The journey for us started when we made the acquisition of Uber's uh, self-driving car business, ATG. So that was, we, we kind of closed that transaction at the beginning of this year. And as part of that transaction, transaction Uber put enough capital into the business so that our runway would uh, stay what it was prior to the transaction. So into, well, into to next year. At that point, we knew we were going to have to go raise capital. Uh, and so we, we looked at the markets and we looked at private transactions. We looked at public transactions as we kind of engaged with that, it became clear there was going to be more capital available to us uh, in the public markets. There's more, you know, more pathways uh, for, for raising capital there that, that made sense. Because during the development of this technology, uh, you know, it's, it's relatively capital intensive. I think once the business gets running, it's, it's a very exciting business. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of people costs involved up front. And so at that point, we explored uh, do we move forward with a, a classic IPO or with a, a SPAC transaction? And in both cases, we wanted to make sure the transaction had the, the hallmarks of a high quality IPO, where we would have tremendous anchor tenants as the investors to go along with it. We'd raise the capital and we'd, we'd be setting our partners up, you know, our capital partners up in a way where the business is going to grow in value and they're going to be you know, happy with the, the structure of that. And so our conversations actually were kind of the, the inverse of what most SPACs have. So we went out and talked to some of the, the blue chip uh, growth investors out there, uh, the, the Bailey Giffords, the MSIM, the, the T. Rose of the world, and you know, engaged with them, talked to them about the, the plan we were, we were developing, you know, engaged with them about the business, engaged with them about setting a price for the business. It kind of came out with, okay, this feels like a fair price for the business in the market that's going to be supported with folks who want to be with us for the long term. And so at that point, we kind of understood the, the, the economic terms. And then it was, 
okay, a SPAC feels like if we can find the right partner here who's going to be aligned for the long term with us, then you know there, there's some advantages to basically pricing and uh, certainty of capital earlier in the process versus an IPO. And so we looked through a list of, I don't know, tens of potential SPACs. We engaged with some number that was less than 10 of those. And we ultimately settled on the reInvent folks because their philosophy for venture capital at scale, their willingness to kind of look at this as a long-term investment as opposed to a quick get, get rich quick and flip it kind of model uh, aligned with what we saw the business needed. Because this is, you know, this is a business where we're going to be growing and building it for hopefully the next century. And so we wanted folks who were going to be aligned with those incentives and, and that vision. Yeah, it's funny. I, I That was sort of my next question because, you know, when I was re- reviewing this deal, I noticed that the RTPY team, you know, they subjected their founder shares to price hurdles of 15, 17, 15, and 20. Um, yeah. But in, in addition to that, their their founder shares are effectively locked up for uh, four years. Yep. Um, and that's a little bit unusual for SPACs. I mean, we, we have seen it um, before, but, you know, it's not always the norm, um, but it definitely better aligns this with shareholders for sure. And was this something that you pushed for or is this something that RTPY uh, sort of in complete agreement with you uh, and you were both on the same page about it? I think we certainly thought it was the right thing to do. And as we engaged with them on it, they were aligned with that. Uh, and yeah, I, and and. So the way we've, we've structured this to align incentives, again, for between existing shareholders, the RTPY sponsors, and, and future shareholders is their promote, they actually vest into based on the performance of the stock. So they get you know 25% of it now, and then at these different price charts, 15, 17, 15, and 20, I think, please check the S4. I think those are the numbers. Yep. Uh, and then they, they're they locked up for four years with it rolling off at a, a 25% per year. Similarly, though, on the Aurora side, our major investors, uh, myself included, the founders and, and uh, most of our, our major strategic, uh, investors have a similar lockup. Uh, so that rolls off at um, 25% per year. And again, this is, we're trying to you know, signal the market the intent here, right? This is not a, a business where we're trying to flip it quickly. It's a, we think we're building foundational important technology that is going to have a profound impact in the world, that it will do a lot of good in the world and it'll create an immense amount of shareholder value. And we want to go along for the ride and we want to make sure the market kind of gets the mindset we have. And it was um, exciting to have a partner that, that shared that model. A good point to make for sure. I also kind of wanted to ask about I mean, clearly you're passionate about um, what you do um, and the technology you've built, but do you envision a future, obviously long off, um, not certainly near term, but where all vehicles are, are self-driving and, and traffic accidents maybe are a thing of the past? I think essentially what I'm trying to ask is, do you think the goal or focus of self-driving is more about safety or is it more about efficiency or maybe it's both? I think the wonderful thing about this technology, is you don't have to trade the two. Uh, so, so when people buy vehicles, it's really hard to get them to buy safety because everyone thinks they're a better than average driver. Uh, and by the way, the stereo you enjoy every day uh, and the, the advanced safety feature saves you once every five years or 10 years, right? And it's really hard to quantify that, that the value to you. In contrast with what we're building in, with a self-driving system, with the Aurora driver, you get all of the values. You get the fact that if it, if you're using it um, as a way for you to get around, you don't you have an extra drink at dinner and not worry about it. 
Um, you can come off a long shift and be tired and get home safely. Uh, right. You, you get those advantages. You know, you can be watching your, your movie on the way there or reading a book or engrossed in conversation. So you get that value that that's really the thing that I think as a consumer, as a customer, you actually fundamentally appreciate. But because the Aurora driver is not distracted, not sleepy, paying attention, has this superhuman set of sensors on it, you know, means that you get safety along along for the ride effectively. And as a society, that's a big advantage. In the freight moving space, again, um, the shortage of drivers is profound. That's, you know, and, and all of these customers value safety immensely. So they're, the fact that they can better utilize the asset, they can have access to drivers they, they can't otherwise get, uh, and they can improve the safety of their fleet, um, all matters to them. Uh, and so, yes, I think it's really exciting. And I do think in the long term, People won't drive cars except for, for sport, right? And it's a, it's a metaphor others have used, right? The, the horse was the way you would get around. And today you ride a horse because it's fun and you enjoy it as opposed to, for the vast majority of us, how you get to work. And I expect the same will be, be true for, for the automobile, but that, that's not a next week you know, or next year thing, right? That's, we're gonna be, the Aurora driver's gonna be operating on the road with, with human drivers, with people driving vehicles for decades to come. Uh, but over time, it'll it'll just make more sense for people. Great. And, and that actually leads directly into what I just wanted to ask you as well, which is I'm sure you get asked constantly is just, you know, when are the self-driving cars going to be here? When can I go out and buy one? You know, and I'm sure that's frustrating. But at the same time, could you just sort of walk us through some of the, the, the milestones that are coming up in terms of, you know, not just the when, but the how, you know, yeah. you're, we're going to get to self-driving cars being available. Yeah. And, and by the way, it's not frustrating. It, it would be much worse if you were like, <laughs> Why are you working on that? That's so stupid. Right? Whereas, you know, hey, how, how soon can I get one of these? I think is is, is a great question to have. So, so first, I, I think for the foreseeable future, you're probably not going to buy these. That they they will be operated as part of fleets, um, whether it's fleets for freight or whether it's um, you know in a ride hailing application. Because I think they'll be, you know, it'll just be it'll just be a better use of capital. Uh, it'll be a better experience for you. You don't have to maintain it or whatnot. They'll be, you know, they kind of be professionally maintained and, and support and serve serve you in the in, in your needs. So I think that'll be probably how it operates. Um, we're pushing to uh, have the Aurora driver come to market in the the, the freight application at the end of 23, uh, and then it'll scale from there. We um, along the way to that, we'll be sharing progress basically on, on four axes. We'll be talking about the progress towards closing our safety case. Uh, we'll be talking about technological progress. We'll be talking about integration with vehicle partners and their partner programs. And we'll be talking about um, uh, the progress we're making with our pilot customers. Uh, and so I can talk about each of those in a little bit more depth. So the safety case is this structured argument that explains why we think it's safe and safe to have the Aurora driver on the road. Uh, and that'll encompass things like functional safety, which is, if you think about safety engineering, that's what you would normally think about. So if something breaks, how do you know it broke? What do you do to make sure it's not catastrophic? Um, how do you mitigate the risk from that thing breaking? The second part of the safety case is the, this kind of jargony phrase, safety of the intended function or SODIF. Uh, and that really just means 
when everything's working, is it working in a way that's safe? So does your car drive down the road instead of the sidewalk? Uh, when a vehicle stops in front of it, does it slow down and stop for it? Uh, so that's the second pillar is this SODA for safety of the intended function bin. And then the third pillar is really operational and organizational safety. So these are things like, um, if the vehicle can operate in a certain set of conditions, how do you make sure it only operates in those conditions? Uh, do you have a culture where people are able to raise safety concerns and they're dealt with justly, that you address those concerns and you don't uh, retaliate against people that are raising those kind of issues? Do you have processes in place that, that make sure when the vehicle goes out on a, you know, for a mission that it's like the right tire pressure or whatever, whatever the safety things are? And so that'll be a, that, that bundle we call the safety case. And so we'll be sharing the progress we make on that over the coming years. We'll share progress on our partner programs. So as we're working with, uh, with our partners at Packard, Volvo Trucks, and Toyota, we'll share updates as those vehicle programs move from you know, prototype to um, develop vehicles to pre-production to production. Um, we'll share progress we make with commercial partners. So to, to date, Aurora has primarily been focused on building core technology. Uh, and over the last year, we've really turned from that core technology development to productizing it and bringing it to market with, with customers. And so as we run pilot programs, like what we're doing with FedEx today, we'll share some of the updates of those pilots as we, as we bring more online and as we have something to say there. And then finally, of course, we'll share uh, updates on the technology and kind of the interesting feature sets that we're bringing online and the, the progress we're making there. Great. That's all very exciting. And I've seen that you've already been making a lot of announcements just in the last uh, few weeks. So what, you know, just in the specific next few months as, as this uh, transaction comes to a close, um, what are some things that, uh, that listeners should be looking out for? We're about a month out so from, from closing the transaction. So RTPY has scheduled their vote for November 2nd on this. And then, you know, assuming the shareholder approval, then uh, we would start trading as Aurora uh, on the 4th. Uh, so between now and then, uh, well, there's only a few weeks. And so we'll, we'll, we'll have a, a little bit of update, I imagine, but, but nothing concrete to, to announce today. Great. Well, you know, Chris, I wanted to thank you for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. And um, we look forward to hearing more from you and Aurora in the future. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Really appreciate the time. So thank you.